You're listening to a sermon given by Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church on May 24th, 2020. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. All right, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 15. I will make my way there as well. And if you know where I'm going, you know that if you Google something like the prodigal son, like I did yesterday, you're going to get some 18,400,000 hits about it. I feel like there are so many books that have been written about this. I almost brought down all the books from our library upstairs just on the story of the prodigal son. If you took those books, not to mention all the commentaries that have been written on the gospel according to Luke, all the articles that have been written about it, and all the sermons that have ever been preached on it, I don't know that there really is anything left for me to actually say about it. It's like a a chicken wing that's been completely picked clean of all of its meat. And so as we begin to look at the story of the prodigal son this morning, the question, is there anything new to be said about it, is a resounding no. I'm not smart enough to find anything new that that centuries of Christians have missed somehow over the years. But we're we're venturing into these waters this morning for a couple of reasons. One, we can't do a series called Seen where we're looking at all of the moments or at least the majority of the moments in the gospel accounts where, where Jesus or a main character in a story he tells sees someone, has compassion on them and Acts. We, we, we can't do a series like this and not do the prodigal son because, as we'll see, the main character in the story does that very thing. So it would be disingenuous of me to do this series and not cover this story, although that's the very thing I wanted to do. But secondly, we're going to venture into this story this morning because I, I'm not trusting in my wisdom and my creativity to come up with something new to say about this story this morning. I want you to know my trust and my hope is that God's spirit will work through his word this morning in a way that exposes to each of us, each of our hearts and each of our minds, something necessary, something essential for our joy in God. See, joy is an essential theme of this story, but it's an essential theme of the entire chapter in this gospel, chapter 15. The nature of joy is is woven throughout the chapter, woven throughout the story, We're going to see where we tend to go and look for it, how we think we'll find it, and really where it comes from. So, got your Bibles, Luke chapter 15. As we set off on this story, as we set off on this journey, I want you to know this, that as we look at the story in the chapter, context is ultimately going to be king. Luke chapter 15 is a chapter that contains a string of parables that Jesus tells to a group of religious leaders that are actually challenging him for his willingness and and his habit of, of hanging out with sinners. And so in response to their challenge, Jesus tells them a series of stories, a series of parables. And, and this parable about a father and his two sons is the third in a series of parables. It really brings the whole story to a climax. So this morning, if we're really going to understand what the parable is saying as a whole, the context of when Jesus said it and why he said it is going to be very important. So let's just jump in. Let's get started. Let's see where God takes us in this story. Luke chapter 15, we'll start in verse 11. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And so the father divided his property between them, between his sons. 
And so as we start the story, we're going to have to grasp the human element. Maybe you're very familiar with the story. You already know where I might go with each of these brothers and the father. But let's at least take a moment to to try to think about it like a human. There are some cultural dynamics to this story that we've got to understand if we're going to feel the weight of it as Jesus' hearers would have. The first thing is we have to understand that this father is very wealthy. In fact, as we read through the story, there are some clues later on in the story that make this more clear for us. We'll we'll see some things that get dropped in that that let us know that in the story, dad is a very wealthy man. And he's not just a wealthy man and that he's doing pretty well for himself. You've got to understand that in the story, this man was most likely the wealthiest man in his village, the wealthiest man in his town. And so if we think about it, just to do some easy math when we talk about what's going on, let's just imagine that this father, this man, this family was worth in the, in the, in the area of like $30 million. $30 million is easy math for me. It's a very wealthy man. And so if we're going to understand it, we've got to talk about the inheritance. The inheritance was something that was essential in the stability and the security of a family. It was known, it was a law that the oldest son in a family would get two-thirds of an inheritance. So $30 million, two-thirds of it, $20 million was coming to the oldest son. The rest would be divided up between the other sons and daughters, if the family had daughters. But this is very important. It seems unfair, but it was very important. The, the livelihood and the security of a family and the wealth of a family wasn't like it is today, uh, tied up in stocks or in bonds or, or in numbers on a screen. It was tied up in property and it was tied up in animals. It was tied, tied up in livestock. This was what would secure their place and their assurance as a people and their prolonging for generations. That it stayed in place and was managed well was very important. And that was the job of the oldest son. So this family was very wealthy This inheritance was very important. The oldest son was going to get two-thirds of it. The youngest son was going to get his third. And when you read the beginning of the story, and Jesus tells us that this father divided his property between them to really feel the weight of what's going on here, you've got to understand the word behind property there is the word bios. It actually means life. Quite literally, he said he divided up the life between his sons. This was the thing that was to take care of him in his old age and his family for generations. And if you think about the town and the village, a man worth such money and such industry, he was also investing in the well-being of those around him. This was the life. So he divided it up between his sons. The youngest of which the story starts with is demanding from his father his 10 million right now. He's not worried about the impact it's going to have on his father. He's not worried about the impact it's going to have on his family. He's not worried about the economic impact it's going to have on his community. He wants what he wants when he wants it, and he wants it right now. And then relationally, in in the heart, between the father and the son, for a son in this day to make this kind of request of a father was utterly unheard of. It's the same thing as saying to his dad, I wish you were dead already. I want what's coming to me when you're gone. I wish you were gone. Relationally, this younger son is utterly casting his father aside, shaming him in front of everybody around them, the town, the village, the rest of the family. And he's taking a third of the life that was meant to be for his family for generations from them to do what he wants with it. Now, the original hearers and those that would actually read Luke's gospel, both Jewish, Christians, and Romans, they would have been absolutely scandalized by this boy's request because of the implications it would have had on the family. 
what it would have meant for everybody else for him to take this now. But the father liquidated a third of his assets. What was to come to his son in the future? He got rid of it, sold it, whatever he had to do, and he gave it to his youngest son. And make no mistake, he wasn't deceived as to what this boy was going to do with it. He knew what this boy was going to do with it. He knew, and I'm reading into it, and everybody reads into the story, but he knew that this was probably the only way this son would ever truly learn what he needed to learn, was to let him go and come to the end of himself. So he gave him what was coming to him. And the two, the father and the son, they parted. So if you keep reading the story, Jesus keeps talking. As expected, this boy wastes all of it in record time. Verse 13 says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So in one stroke, it's all gone. Ten million, let's just use the easy math. Ten million comes to this boy. Dad gets it out of his property, gives it to his son. His son goes off to the big city, and in no time, ten million is gone. And he's left with nothing. Bankrupt. But he's not yet at the end of himself. Rock bottom hasn't come yet. Verse 14. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So now all of a sudden a famine comes and he's caught with no resources. He's got no money, evidently no friends around anymore that the money's gone. He's left his family, he's in a new country, and he's got nothing. He's got no fallback. So verse 15 says, he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now Jesus tells us a lot about the situation right there in in very little words. The words he uses kind of gives us the indication that that country this boy went to was a, a land of Gentiles because Jewish people were forbidden to raise pigs. They were unclean animals. So this boy, this Jewish boy who has left home has, has now hired himself out as a, as a servant to a Gentile landowner to take care of unclean pigs. He is unclean. He is serving an unclean master taking care of unclean pigs. This is about as low as it begins to get. Verse 16 says he was longing. That's an intense desire. He's he's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. He wasn't even allowed to eat the pig food. This man cared more about his pigs than he did about this boy. He was worth less to this man that he hired himself out to than the pigs on his farm. This boy had decided what he knew freedom looked like. And he had gone after what he thought freedom was. He had gone after where he thought joy was to be found, and now he finds himself in virtual slavery. So without wandering too far off course, we've, we've got to remember that as Jesus tells this story, there. There's an initial impact that Jesus is trying to have on those that are listening. There's an initial thrust to the story, and we'll we'll have to see that. But now we we come to this story on the other side of the cross, and, and God has preserved this particular story in his word for us. And so there are layers of meaning to it. And, and as we come to this part of the story, we, we can't take too much time, but even in the beginning, the just this early trajectory of this younger son, you and I are are getting another glimpse, a very real glimpse 
a personal glimpse at the nature and the trajectory of sin. Sin, in its essence, is always a desire of our heart to be independent from God. I mean, this was the temptation that, that captured Adam and Eve in the garden. It's this thought and this intention in the mind and in the heart that, that doing what I want, what I believe would please me, the freedom that my heart wants is what's best for me. Doing what pleases me is, is far superior and hopefully more joyful to my heart than doing what pleases God. See, in essence, all sin is related to our desire to be independent from God and to have our own way. And it often starts with, with very small desires. Small thoughts and small desires that feed the imagination until the affections of our heart begin to burn hotter for those things that we imagine. And as our affections burn harder for those things that we imagine, our will, our feet, our hands, our actions begin to follow. This boy's journey from demanding his inheritance to winding up in a pigsty, not being able to eat the food of the pigs, worth less to the man he's hired himself to than the pigs themselves. It, it wasn't an overnight thing. It didn't just happen like this. This boy was following where the affections of his heart took him. This is the crafty nature of, of sin. Take some time at some point this week. Go back and read Proverbs chapter 7. Sin calls out to all of us, luring us to it. Sin's personified in Proverbs chapter 7 as, a, as an adulterous woman who's calling out to a, a young man wandering down the street, hey, no one will know, no one's here. Come into my house, no one's going to get hurt, no one's going to find out. In fact, she says, hey, we've already prayed our vows and offered our sacrifices, God's okay with it. This is the craftiness and the trajectory of sin. Our heart becomes cold and Maybe we begin to feel bored and cynical about the church, cynical about God, cynical about Christians. And so we begin to look for the next little hit of excitement. Maybe we begin to do things or, or watch things that beforehand we would have never even entertained, but maybe we just begin to put ourselves in different positions now that we shouldn't be in. We begin to lower our guards. We pay less attention to what's enticing our hearts and we begin to cross subtle little lines we would have never crossed before and the trajectory of sin just takes us further and further down. It's crafty. This boy, he sought independence from his dad as the path to joy and his father gave him over to the very thing his heart desired. That's what's going on here. In fact, and I wish we had time. If we had time to do, to do it, you can do it at some point this week. It's a fascinating journey to, to read the story of the prodigal son and then go read the first half of the book of Romans. It's as if Paul is writing out theologically what we actually experience in this story. You might remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul reminds the church that although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and so God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to their impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. For this reason, Paul says, God gave them over to their desires. 
this is what's happening with this boy. His dad has let him have the very thing he wants, the thing he thinks is going to bring him joy, the freedom he thinks he has to have by coming up with his own life in his own way. He's found himself now in slavery in a pigsty with nothing. The story goes on. Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 17. It says, when he came to himself, literally when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. See, in a moment, and we don't know how long it had been, but in a moment, this boy began to wake up to reality. See, sin is delusional. Sin presents a lie to our hearts and to our minds, a delusion of joy, a delusion of freedom. And the thing is, we begin to buy into it. And we actually begin to live a life that isn't consistent with reality. That's the nature of sin. So this boy begins to wake up. He comes to his senses. He he wakes up to his perception of reality, the fact that he's living out of touch with it. And he begins his journey back to normalcy. This is the path of true repentance. He wakes up. It starts by waking up. It's one of the hardest parts for us because we hate owning the fact that our biggest problem is actually ourselves. But he wakes up and he comes to his senses and watch what he does. He owns the reality of his sin. He owns it. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my father. He owns his sin. He admits he was wrong. He's not just sorry that his life is bad. He's not just looking around the pigsty, looking at his destitution, and sorry that this is where he ended up and wished that it was different. No, he sees that he's actually sinned against God and against his dad, and he makes no excuses for it. He owns all of it. He doesn't say, well, if I had had better friends... You know, if I had just invested it over here, if the famine hadn't actually happened, if I had actually found a different farmer who would have been, he doesn't come up with 10,000 excuses if dad had only been nicer, if my brother had only been nicer, if mom had listened more, whatever. He doesn't come up with it. He owns the reality of his own sin. He makes no excuses for what's happened. No shifting of the blame. And you'll see as you read into it, he, he owns whatever potential consequences are going to come because of it. Not just the ones, the situation that he's in now, but the fact that as he returns to his father, he has zero expectation, rightly, especially in that day, of anyone receiving him back. Of ever actually being his father's son again. He, he owns whatever potential consequence might come. I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask him, just let me be a hired hand. I don't even have to be your son. This this young boy, as he's waking up and beginning the path of repentance, he's personifying the opening lines of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're seeing what it means to be poor in spirit, to mourn over sin, to be humble, and to to be hungry for the Lord. And so he does what ultimately becomes the hardest thing for all of us. 
Verse 20 says he arose and he came to his father. He, he turns. This is the hardest part. As hard as it is to own that we're the problem, as hard as it is to own our sin, as hard as it is to not make excuses, I think it's easier for all of us to do those things than to actually turn and make a step in another direction. We can justify in our mind, oh, okay, I see that I sinned, I see that I was wrong. We can wrestle with the feelings that come with it. We can make no excuses in our own mind for what we did and why we did it, but then to take a step in repentance to turn often becomes the hardest thing. And I think it's the hardest thing for us, especially in our relationship with God, because if we're really honest with ourselves, somewhere in our heart, we're not sure what we're turning to. There's something about his nature and his character our heart is not believing or recognizing. So as quick as we might be sometimes to own our sin, to see our sin against the Lord, to make no excuses for it, to own the consequences that it's brought, to actually turn to him in confession, to move towards him becomes hard because if we're honest, our heart's not sure of how he's going to react. For for this boy in coming to his dad, he's doing it come what may. Culturally, he deserves the full wrath and rejection of his father. But he turns, he arises, and he takes his first step and his second step because he's banking on mercy. He's banking on forgiveness. He's coming with nothing. He's bringing nothing to the table to his father. But he's taking the step because he's banking on what he thinks he knows of his father's heart. And now his dad, as the the story keeps going, what happens next in the story would have left anyone listening to Jesus at the time utterly slack-jawed. It is not what they expected. Jesus keeps going with the story and he says, while this boy was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. You see, they would have probably stopped Jesus. There probably would have been gas. There would have been noises. There would have been people standing up, moving around, talking to each other. Because in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, there is a law that says that parents of boys like this, if you've got children like this younger son, there is a law that God has given his people in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that says you can take that child, bring that son to the middle of the village, and stone him to death. For the shame and the sin that he's brought upon his people. Everybody's expecting that to be the outcome of the story. Dad is supposed to reject this boy, not not receive him. He's supposed to cast him away, not bring him in. But having been utterly humiliated by his son, apparently this father's love knows no limit. So like we've seen each week, he saw him. He saw him while he was a long way off, which we don't need to take too much time to get into, but think about it. He saw him while he was a long way off, which means he was looking. We don't know how long the boy's been gone, but dad's never stopped looking. While he was a long way off, he saw him, and he felt compassion. That same deep, guttural emotion we've seen week after week that's most associated in the Bible with Jesus. 
He saw him. He saw what he looked like. He saw his clothes. He saw he probably being emaciated and dirty. He saw his son the way he was, and he had compassion. And just like we've seen each week, he acted. As one old pastor said, the, those old eyes, though dim with age, were sharp with the Father's love. He saw him, felt compassion, and he acted. We've seen this compassion of Jesus, this compassion of God play itself out in different stories and in different ways depending upon the situation and the encounter. But here's what compassion looks like in this story. This dad takes off running. I mean, this is compassion come to life. You gotta understand, I think we talked about it back when we looked at at Zacchaeus. In these days, in this culture, mature men, especially wealthy or powerful men, they don't run in public. That is a shameful thing for a mature man to do in this day. But he doesn't care. He does not care what people think about him anymore. He is going to show this town how to welcome his son. And just as those old eyes, dim with age or sharp with love, the aged feet have forgotten how feeble they are. And he runs. And Jesus says he falls on his neck and repeatedly kisses him. Older translations will say he kisses him much. And I would encourage you, if you take the time this week, go Google Charles Spurgeon's sermon called Kisses Him Much. Spurgeon preached well over a dozen sermons just on this story, and he preached a sermon on those words. Kisses him much. Three words. That's Spurgeon. Three words, a sermon probably an hour and 20 minutes long. The best sermon you're ever going to read. He takes each of those kisses and begins to define what those kisses meant to this boy. He falls on his neck. He kisses him much. This dad trades his honor. He trades his dignity in front of everyone around him for his son's shame. He's going to take that shame of his son on himself and he's going to run and he's going to give this boy his honor. Remember, we're reading this story in the shadow of the cross. The one who's telling the story is the one who's going to take the shame and the guilt of our sin upon himself. Who's going to suffer and die in our place in order that through faith in him we may be given the honor and the dignity and the right standing that only he deserves. That we can know this same joy of the Father. Spurgeon, I'll give you a taste of what he said Spurgeon said, the eyes of mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. Even the eye of faith is dim compared with the eye of God's love. He sees a sinner long before a sinner sees him. Slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. God can run when we can scarcely limp. And if we're limping towards him, he will run towards us. He doesn't delay for a moment. For though this father was out of breath, he was not out of love. Just imagine God hanging on the neck of a sinner. What a picture. When God's arm is about our neck and his lips are on our cheek, kissing us much, then we understand more than any preacher or book could ever tell us of his love. Jesus is giving us a picture, a glimpse, again, once again, 
into the nature and the character of the heart of God the Father. As this father, the story goes, continues to hang on his son's neck and kiss him, the son begins to speak. Remember, he had resolved to himself to own his sin, to, to confess his sin, to own the reality of it, to own the consequences of it. When he came back to his dad, he, he wasn't going to make any excuses for it. He knew where he stood, or at least he thought he did. And so verse 21 says, the son said to his father, his father's still hanging on him, kissing him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the minute he begins, he, he gets this confession out, and then it's as though the grace of the Father cuts him off. He, he never actually gets to saying, I'm not worthy to be your son. Let me be your servant. Dad cuts him off. He never gets there. Dad's grace begins to take over. And he says to his servants right then and there, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. What's happening? He's not letting this boy live with this sense of servitude to him. No, he's restoring him back to his place as a son. He's restoring him back to the fullness of the relationship they had. This is restoration going on. No, you're forgiven. You're safe. You're loved. You're mine. You don't have to work for it. You're not my servant. Never have been, you never will be. You're my son. And he tells his servants to bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat, let us celebrate. For this son was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost. Now he's found. They, everybody right there, begin to celebrate. Jesus is laying out for everyone who will hear him a vivid picture of the heart of God for sinners who will turn from themselves and to him by faith and simply limp. All it takes is a limping by faith, empty and humble in his direction. And as Spurgeon said, he's already running towards you. And when you get there, there's no scolding awaiting you. No shaming awaiting you. No task list of things you've got to do before he restores you back into relationship with him. Nothing that you have to accomplish. This would have been unheard of to those who were listening to him. The idea of a sinner repenting and not having to show and work that thing out in such a way that they earn the forgiveness of God would have been unheard of to the Pharisees listening. But Jesus says, no scolding awaits a repentant sinner coming to the Father. He's already taken off and running towards you in his love, and he welcomes you, as Spurgeon said, with the kisses of forgiveness, of restoration, of assurance and security. When you return to him and believe in Jesus, he's reminding you that you and I receive the full right of sons. Those days, that meant absolute security. That meant intimate access with the Father. It meant his commitment to you for your well-being, for your flourishing, and for your joy. No scolding awaited. Full restoration as a son and a future hope. 
See, friends, for us on this story, on this side of the cross, we know that, that God is in the midst of preparing a new heaven and a new earth where his sons and his daughters will reign with him forever. That's our inheritance. That can't be taken away. See, right now, everything feels insecure. Everything about our physical life and our financial life and our our health and even some of our relationships, they feel insecure right now. It's a crazy time that we're all going through that none of us have ever lived through before. But no matter what bad financial decisions we might make during this time, no matter what mistakes we might make during this time, we have an inheritance coming to us that is as secure as the love of God himself. It can't be taken away. As Peter reminded the church, it's pure and undefiled. This is the compassionate heart of God the Father to his children. By the grace of God, anyone willing to turn from their sin and to Christ may experience this kind of love from God right now. So even though we're talking through phones and computers, my prayer is that God will make it happen that you may be so assured by his word and his spirit that you can see how, as Spurgeon says, God kisses away all of your sin. And when it rises again, he kisses it away again. And when you think on it with shame, he kisses it away again. And when you blush over all the remembrance of your evil deeds, he kisses you again and again to assure you that you are fully, freely forgiven. Do you know the heart of God the Father like this? Do you want to? You can. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove yourself for it. You actually just have to empty yourself of all of that effort and turn to him in faith. And you can know even now this kind of lavish love now here's the thing, I'm tempted to stop and there are probably a lot of people watching right now that want me to stop. But in reality, if you read the story, you gotta read it in context, we haven't even gotten to the point of the story. Most of what we've talked about, we've talked about because we get to see it through the shadow of the cross. The, the cross kind of cast this shadow over this story for us now and we can see these things, but Remember, Jesus was telling this story at a particular time to a particular group of people, and we've not yet really hit the thrust of what he was trying to get across. Those that he was telling this story to, the cross hadn't happened yet. So as you and I read this story, you listen to me talk, maybe you're starting to get the feels in your heart because of God's love for you that he's shown to you in Jesus. They would not have been getting the feels listening to Jesus. They would have been very angry. They wouldn't have been weepy at this point. See, at this point in the story, the main point is about to be made. Jesus is trying to explode every category these religious leaders had in their heads for what God was like and what his love was like. Remember, this parable closes the entire chapter of Jesus talking to them. This is the last parable. So this last little interaction between the father and his other son is the capstone to all that he said. The parable of a lost sheep and a shepherd going to find it. The parable of a lost coin and a woman going to find it. The parable of a father and two sons all together. This last bit is the point. 
God is warning those who were listening to him, those religious leaders, all of those who thought they were good enough to deserve God's love, God is giving them a warning. Culminates here. So in verse 25, as great as the story is, it isn't over. This man had an older son who was in the field. And as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. So he hears a party going on closer to the house. He's not there. He's out. He's, he hears the party and he's got to be curious because I imagine, and again, I'm reading into it and we always do. We've got to be careful. But I imagine the time between when the younger son demanded his money and left has not been the most joyous time in the house. Dad's probably been a bit sorrowful. The son, his older son, hears a party going on and it's got to make him curious about what's happening. But here's the thing. He doesn't do what older sons would normally do. He he doesn't go into the party. He doesn't take himself and and walk himself into the party ready to enjoy time with his father, friends, and the village. He, He holds himself back. He holds back from whatever is going on. And he asks the servant, what's what's happening? The servant says in verse 27, Your brothers come home. And your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. See, this servant is just passing on the facts of the story, but he's passing them on from the dad's perspective. There's joy. Your son is back. He's safe. He's, he's sound. We're celebrating. But Jesus says this older brother, he was angry, and he refused to go in. That angry is a fun word, and the Greek and the Hebrew are always very pictorial. The Hebrew a little bit more than the Greek. But this angry, it's a picture. It's a picture of something that has become so heated over long term that it's beginning to swell. It's like hot water that's been sitting on the stove that you turn the heat up on and it starts to boil. He didn't just go from cold to hot. No, he's been angry for a while. But at this news, he begins to boil over. You've got to see that in that particular culture, for this son to not go into the party his father is throwing, to withhold his presence and stay out here, is just as shaming to his dad as what his younger brother did however long ago and wishing that his father was already dead and demanding what was going to be his. He's shaming his dad in front of everybody else just like his other brother did. And so what you begin to see in the story and and what Jesus' original hearers would have begun to see and not liked is that Jesus is saying that this older son is just as lost as his younger brother was. See, in the context of the story, each parable that Jesus told, there was something that was lost. A sheep was lost. A coin was lost. So far in the story, a, a younger brother was lost. It wasn't where it was supposed to be. And someone had to go out and find it. So here in this story, Jesus is saying the older son, he's not where he's supposed to be either. He's out here. And again, the compassionate humility of the father. He goes out. He goes out to his other son. Jesus said his father came out and entreated him. That's tender. That's like my son. That's not like pleading. That's not like demanding. I don't know how you hear it, but 
He's not going out scolding him. Not going out, why aren't you here? Get in here. You're embarrassing me. This is a dad who goes out in tenderness and in compassion and in a sense lovingly pleads, my son, my boy, come be with me. Come on. But this boy, he, he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your commands. Interesting word. That you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who's devoured your life, your property, remember life, that's bios. He's devoured your property, your life with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. He devoured your life and now he gets to eat the calf. It's not just the younger son that was lost. This brother is lost too. He's out on the outside. Even though he's done all the things a good son is supposed to do, on the outside, everything looks right, but on the inside, he's wandered just as far away from a relationship with his father as his other brother has. Both boys wanted what they wanted. And wanting what they wanted from the father, they both rejected being with the father. It just looked different. They both wanted what the Father could give them. They just didn't want him. The point that Jesus is making to those who are listening is that you can be with God. You can do all the right things, do all the things you're supposed to do. All the people who are listening to him, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, prided themselves on their obedience to the law, doing everything they were supposed to do. Jesus is saying you can do everything you're supposed to do, just like this older brother, and yet be just as far from God as the younger one. You can do everything that you think you're supposed to do. You can be with God the whole time and yet be far from him at the same time. You can be so obedient. I've done everything. This boy lays his resume out to his dad. I've served your commands. But he's still lost. It's very similar to that passage in Matthew chapter 7 that all of us hate when we bring it up to read on a Sunday morning where people come to Jesus and they say, hey Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? They were so amazing. And Jesus is gonna look at them and say, depart from me, I, I never knew you. To do all these things that look so right, yet in your heart still be just as lost. This older son has established his standing with his father, his relationship with his father on the basis of his obedience. Because of that, he's really angry at the injustice of his father's grace. Self-righteousness in his heart is, has blinded him even to his current, very present sin of dishonoring his dad. I've done everything I'm supposed to do, yet not honor you like the law says, and in my dishonoring of you, I'm still propping myself up. Couldn't see it. He's been involved in all of his dad's businesses, all the family affairs, and in his heart, he was never really involved with his father. He's drifted so far away, he can't even see that what his dad is doing for his younger brother 
He can't even see that what is happening right now, it's making him so angry that what his dad is doing is the essence of who he is. He's drifted so far away from the heart of his father, he can't even see the purest expression of it. He doesn't know him. And he's not willing to accept his brother's repentance or his father's compassion. Remember, Jesus is talking to a group of people who weren't willing to accept the repentance of sinners and the compassion of Jesus. Jesus being the fullest expression of God's heart. Those listening to Jesus, they had built their assurance before God on a house of cards. Their good works, their best efforts, and their self-righteousness was causing them to be just as lost, just as out of touch with God's heart as this older brother, just as lost as the sinners that they despised. It's not hard for us on this side of the cross to imagine how easy it is to to grow into older brother-like people. We've talked about self-righteousness a lot in this series. It comes up in all of these encounters with Jesus. But over time, as the Holy Spirit works in our heart to conform us into the image and likeness of Christ more and more, and we see what were present sins actually be put to death, they're, they're no longer descriptive of our life. We, we see some kind of conquering over them and putting them away. We can begin to believe in the delusion that that was somehow based on our best effort and that we're really good people now, certainly better than most. So the external sins of our passions might be dampened, but the internal sins of our self-righteousness, the internal sins of our attitudes just begin to run wild. But with a compassionate love, Jesus brings the story to a close. You see this father go after his older son's heart. Just as Jesus goes after the heart of the self-righteous. This father looks at him, verse 31, and he says to his son, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. You could have asked me of anything at any time. I mean, how could I actually give you more than you already have? You had every opportunity every single day to take advantage of being with me, of being my son. How could I give you more? You're always with me. But it's fitting, verse 32, it's fitting. That is, that is a divine fitting. That is, the, that is a divine necessity. When he says it's fitting to celebrate That's Jesus saying it is of divine importance and necessity to celebrate and be glad, be joyful. For this, your brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost and he is found. This is worthy of a celebration. There's no limit to my grace. See, in the context of the story, as Jesus brings it to an end right here, What Jesus is doing is ultimately inviting these Pharisees who are listening to him into the party that God is throwing. He's inviting them into the kingdom, into the family that isn't based on their self-righteousness. It isn't based on their merit. It isn't based on their earning. It's based on the forgiveness that comes by God's grace. He's inviting them in. Are you going to come? 
as you and I consider it on this side of the cross, it's, it's not really as necessary as we often try to make it to figure out who am I? Am I a younger brother? Am I an older brother? Which one am I? Because really, we're both at different times and in different days. Our, our heart shows signs of both. It is not as necessary to try to bifurcate it in our own life, but to realize, as Paul said, if you go back and read it in the context of Romans, there is no distinction. Romans chapter 3, Paul says there's no distinction. Between Romans chapter 1, those who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and God gave them over to their passions, or Romans chapter 2, those Israelites who believe they're better than the rest of them because of their obedience. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there's no distinction. We're both lost. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all, the self-righteous, all, are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a substitutionary sacrifice to be received by faith. God in Christ, just like Jesus was then, God in Christ is calling you into the party. He has come out to you in his Son, He is inviting you in to experience the joy of the Father. Anyone, anyone can get in on this. All we have to do is wake up. All we have to do is turn. Anyone can get in experiencing and enjoying the joy of God the Father. Let me pray for us this morning because God is going to have to do for us what he did for this boy. God, we ask that you by your Holy Spirit you would wake us up to the reality of your love. Wake us up to the reality of your grace. We ask this morning that you by your Holy Spirit would create in our hearts, would cultivate in our hearts an unquenchable hunger for your joy a joy that nothing else could ever come close to, a joy that makes all lesser joys taste sour to our soul. Lord, wake us up to the magnitude of your love for us in your Son. We ask this morning that you would do that in his name for his glory and our joy. Friends, may the love of God the Father by the fellowship of Christ the Son, the power of God the Spirit. Fill your heart to overflowing this week. Love you. See you next time. You've been listening to a sermon given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to listen to other sermons, visit us at redemptionhill.com.